Hello, friends. My name is Steve, and we're here today to talk with author Ken Liu about the first two books, The Dandelion Dynasty, The Grace of Kings, and Wall of Storms. So we're here today with some friends. Uh, Yulene, will you kick us off with some introductions? Hi, everyone. So I'm Yulene. I have a small booktube channel called Yulene Reads. Um, I've read The Grace of Kings in 2021. It made my top 10 of the year. And then I read The Wall of Storms this year. It's been a couple of months, so I might sound like an idiot remembering names and mispronouncing it, but I loved it so much. It's definitely going to be a top 10 book of the year again. So I'm so happy to talk about it because I think that most of us are pretty much in love with the series. Yeah. And Taylor? So I'm Taylor. I also have a booktube channel made between the pages you can see below. And uh, I am a huge fan of the Dandelion Dynasty. It is no secret. I will not shut up about it. <laughs> so uh, I have read the series, but you know today is just for the first two books. And uh, The Wall of Storms is my favorite of the series. So I'm very hyped for this conversation. And uh, Mr. Liu? Uh, I'm Ken Liu. I'm an author. Uh, I wrote The Dandelion Dynasty. Um, I'm very excited to um, talk with everyone about the books. Um, it should be a lot of fun. Yes. And Hans. Yeah, I'm Hans. Um, I don't really have a YouTube channel anymore, but I just am a fanatic about books. So these people are kind enough to let me in. Um, yeah, this is my first time to uh, read both of these books. Um, I finished it yesterday morning, so still fresh in my head. And I really loved it. So. I'm excited to talk with all of you and with the author about this book. So I think it's safe to say that we're all big fans of the series, but, but there's certain books that you really love. And then there's books that are special. It's like a different, they're just, they're just another level. And after the grace of Kings, uh, Ken, what you did with the wall of storms, I wondered how did you keep track of all these different storylines? There's, there's so much that's so rich and, vibrant and immersive it's it's almost like you live in this world when you're reading it um it's kind of how i felt when i was writing it um i mean uh i wrote the series over a period of uh, a decade uh and especially for the latter books i had to um really uh i mean each revision pass through the final two books took about 18 months. So um, it really was uh, something that I had to sort of be completely immersed in. Um, I wrote virtually nothing else during um, the second half of the decade, um, except the series. Um, as far as keeping track of things, uh, I rely on technology. Um, I kept a wiki for myself, uh, tracking all the details. Um, I also use timeline software to track people's ages and uh, how many years have passed between various things. Um, the second book wasn't quite so bad, but the third and fourth books required me to jump back and forth between two very distant lands. Um, and because of how long it took to travel between the places, um, it felt a little bit like writing one of those space operas where you know it would take years to go from planet to planet. So I had to do a lot of planning, a lot of timeline juggling uh similar to what you would do with a big sci-fi epic um so the short answer is a lot of notes a lot of note taking that, that's mm. 
it's kind of nice to hear that you had to do that on your end because I think the readers feel <laughs> that we have to do that sometimes as well. And I mean yeah. that exactly. I mean that in a good way. Like there's a lot to track, and it lends itself to rereads really well. You That's know, cool. Something new. That is cool. Um, the one thing that I um, uh, I worry a little bit about um, is the fact that I wrote the books with the idea that readers would be able to flip to the map relatively easily um, and also flip to the table of characters and the glossary. Um, and then later on, I realized that a lot of readers experience these books uh, as audiobooks, um, which means that these other things are hard for them to access. Um, so I don't, I don't know if there's an easy solution to that. Uh, perhaps, you know, audiobook software could have some sort of interface that allows you to pull up the map and these other ancillary things easily. Um, one of my interests is in the technology of bookmaking. So I, um, you know, I have this uh, seminar that I teach uh, on the history of bookmaking um, and how the codex, um, the book as we know it today, um, had a definitive advantage over the scroll, largely because codices allow you to have a bunch of um, random access uh, technologies added to it, such as the table of contents, the index. The... So some of the earliest codices in East Asia uh, were reference books. Um, in fact, the earliest mm -hmm. known codices from East Asia were rhyming dictionaries because writing poetry was such an important uh, literary, literary task um, that codices, proto-codices, were invented to do that. Um, so um, anyway, back from that tangent, uh, I, I really wonder what sort of advantage, uh, innovations can be done in the realm of audiobooks to bring some of that stuff back in because, um, you know, I wrote the books with the codex in mind. So that's how I structured it. I, I wanted readers to be able to look at the map and other stuff, um, but audiobooks are very scroll-like. They, 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 they serialize the experience in a you know, in a very definitive way. Um, but surely, you know, in this day and age, when people are listening to it on their smartphones, there ought to be a way to pull up the, the map and other things easily. So mm -hmm. it lends itself well to having those things, because there's so many things you have to keep track of. So it's easy to page back to the map and see where you are at that moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, who of us has listened to it on audiobook and who has read it physically? Because I listen to it on audiobook and I'm somebody I never look at the map or at the glossary. I'm I'm a horrible fantasy reader in that part. So I <laughs> so I, I, I could definitely see that it's a more difficult series to get into as an audiobook, just as a Song of Ice and Fire, for example, would be, just because it's so rich and there's an entire world to discover with multiple POVs. But I was wondering how other people who do usually look at the map, how they would then experience this. Um, I also did audio. I do have a physical copy, but it's in the States. So even though I, I bought them, I was like, well, right, how am I going to consume them now? So I did do audio, but I, I'm a map person. So I did Google the glossary. The map isn't available online that I could find, but I did Google the glossary. Uh, so I was like looking up names if I wasn't sure. If you are interested for anybody who's uh, listening to the audiobook, I um, I do have the maps up on my website. So if you go to my website and go to the pages for the individual books, I have the maps I drew 
uh, on there. Um, I think I also have the official maps. I got permission from Saga. I think I got permission from Saga at least for the first two books. So those maps are up there too. And it will be interesting for you to compare the map I drew versus the, the official mm -hmm. map by the artist. Uh, it, it's interesting to sort of see the evolution and, and what changes. Yeah, I did about half and half. I did half audio and half uh, paperback and Kindle, but I never felt like I had to look at the the names. Uh, I didn't feel like I had to look back. I usually do in these big epic fantasy books, but I didn't feel like I felt like I had a pretty good handle on who was who and where That's they good. were. So, yeah, my my reading experience is largely shaped by um, you know Tolkien's books, the The Hobbit especially, um, and I remember when I was reading it. I loved flipping back and forth between the map and, and the text to see where I was and to imagine, you know, what's going to come next. Um, the, the, the geography really is so important for the story. Um, and I wrote the series with that in mind. Um, so to me, the map is, is a very important part of, of the experience as I was writing it. Um, but it's kind of interesting to hear from the reader's perspective what that was like. And I wonder, did you always plan to have the second book be The Wall of Storms? And um, where did the wall come from? Where did that idea come from? Um, that's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> so the second book was always planned to be The Wall of Storms. Um, as far as where the idea came from, um, there were multiple sources of inspiration, but the primary one is metaphorical. So... Um, <clears throat> If you look at the history of nations, uh, the founding of nations, nations with a, a conscious attempt at founding, not nations that sort of emerged just sort of historically from time immemorial. So examples would be the Roman Empire uh, or the United States. These are countries that were founded in a very conscious act of political um, collective decision making. Um, new states often have to go through this very important transition between the founding moment and the moment when it becomes a normal state and that transition is very difficult um, that's what i metaphorically think of as the wall of storms the transition between the founding generation and the next so for the u.s that transition largely occurred as a result of the constitutional convention uh, so you had the revolutionary era and then the colonies found themselves, uh, you know, what worked for fighting a war for almost 10 years does not in fact work for uh, uh, governing the nation. Um, and the U.S. is somewhat unique in that the transition happened relatively peacefully. Uh, people were able to actually collectively come up with the constitutional convention explicitly and do it. Um, Rome had these very tumultuous civil wars uh, for, for that transition as the empire replaced the republic. Um, and if you look at other parts of the world, uh, whether it's dynastic or republican, they all have this thing where they have to go through, go through the transition of these larger than life figures who are the founding generation. And then how do they transition to the next? It's, it's very hard. Um, that it's the wall of storms. How, how do countries, nations, uh, navigate themselves through that terrible, terrible transition into something that will last. 
a lot of nations don't make it. Uh, a lot of revolutionary regimes never make it through the founding moment, and they just collapse. Um, so I knew that because, you know, the story of Dara is a story about constitutionalism, about the emergence of a new people, modeled in a lot of ways of um, the American experience. Um, I wanted to tell the story of this transition through the wall storms. And then once I um, decided on the metaphor of it, uh, as a lot of people know, I enjoy writing fiction in which metaphors are made literally true. So the metaphorical wall of storms was made into a literal wall of storms surrounding Dara. And the idea is it's only by figuring out a way to pass through uh, the wall of storms can Dara achieve its true potential. Um, so that's the idea behind it. I love that so much um, because one of the themes that stuck out to me is in this book particularly is like the long reaching effects of history and how everything affects other things. Is this, this is spoilery, right? So mm -hmm. I can, okay. Yeah. So like an example of that might be when Emperor uh, Mapidore, when he sent his um, group of people to find immortality and they went through the wall of storms, their interaction with the Liuku at the time is the, one of the reasons for the Liuku hating the, the people of Dara as soon as they land on the shores. So that's, you know, you see history of people who are already dead, but actions that they decided to take are affecting people nowadays. Or also like Kuni's betrayal of Mata in the end of um, The Grace of Kings then led to little pop-ups of rebellion against Kuni because of that made Mata into a martyr figure. Right. So I that's a, a theme that I really saw throughout this book was that historical choices are not isolated. Right. So hearing you say that there's this wall of storms generationally makes a lot of sense because not only is it the transition of power, but it's also choices made by those that come before you. The consequences are far reaching. And mm -hmm. a lot of our characters in this book have to deal with that. Kuni's yeah. children have to deal with that. With yeah. He made. So just hearing you say that, this clicked for me. I mean, if, if anything, if nothing else, the series is about history. Um, so, you know, just a, at a superficial level, it's an attempt to tell the story of the emergence of the modern nation, something like the United States, using a set of historical references that are taken from East Asian history. Um, you know, as I think I've explained uh, to some of you, um, it's a very unusual choice. Usually when people write metaphorically about the history of the U.S., they go to Rome or Britain or some sort of metaphor on that, largely because the founding fathers of the United States tended to look at themselves as descendants of Rome. They consciously evoked models of Rome to describe what they were doing. So it's very natural for modern writers to do the same thing. I was doing something explicitly different. I wanted to evoke um, a set of references from East Asia to tell the story of, a founding, uh, of the founding of a multi-ethnic, multi-cultural nation like the U.S., which is, as far as I know, something that um, no other epic fantasy has tried to do. Uh, so that's the part that is unusual and interesting to me. Um, but uh, I also want to say that a lot of what I was trying to do is really a meditation on our own attitudes towards history. Um, often we say um, uh, something to the effect of, you know, those who don't know history are 
doomed to repeat it or something to that effect. I actually don't think that's true at all. I think oftentimes what happens is we know a little bit of history and then we consciously try to replicate our imagined ver versions of those mm -hmm. historical events in our heads, which is why we're so obsessed with things like the Thucydides trap. We're so obsessed with comparing every kind of geopolitical contest to the Peloponnesian War. We're so obsessed with evoking models of Rome, of Britain, of Tang Dynasty China, whatever, to explain what is happening at this moment. We do have a tendency to do that. Um, and the Grace of Kings, if I can say something, it, it is a little bit unusual in that a lot of epic fantasy, I think, are very ahistorical. They tend to posit the idea that things have been like this for thousands of years, but there's very little conscious evocation of history. That's not the case in the Grace of Kings. There's a lot of historical revisionism, which I think is the only kind of history that we engage in. Revisionism often is spoken of as, as a bad thing, but we're always engaging in it. So for example, Princess Kokomi um, is a very controversial figure. She shows up in book one, she has this moment and all the men uh, have a particular judgment of who she is and what she did. And now if you remember in book two, one of the most important episodes is um, Princess Thera's defense of her. Um, she did not have a lot of historical evidence to go on, but she had intuition of what she was going through. Um, and she was able to say, I believe Princess Kokomi was very brave and she did something like this that no one else could have done. Now, what is important about that moment is she was engaged in historical revisionism, um, but her teacher was able to say, I did not understand that until you explained that to me. So I think that's you know one of those very critical moments when we can understand that someone else could have a different perspective on this historical event and we now see it in a different light. It's something that I think is very important for us as we reinterpret American history, world history, whatnot. It's it's very important for us to reinterpret that history as we figure our place in it. Um, and uh, you know, this is not much of a spoiler, but Princess Kikomi comes back over and over again in the rest of the series. And she is always very important. And in fact, she becomes a very important model. Um, that's probably not something that most readers would expect upon reading her in the first book. They think she's just a very minor figure who played a very cliched role that women often play in these war epics. Um, but no, uh, her role gets reinterpreted over and over again. And that is the point. Over and over again in these series, the earlier events are reinterpreted and re-understood in some new light. Um, and what I'm trying to do here is to show that that's true of all history. We, we always have to do that reinterpretation and retelling. Um, and that's part of what uh, allows us to move forward too. Um, it's not about abandoning the past, but trying to weave the past into the present and the future in a way that strengthens and empowers us rather than uh, holds us back. We do have one of our friends, Drew, watching. Um, Drew is uh, happy Sunday, everyone. I'm unbelievably excited for this discussion. Wall of Storms was brilliant, easily one of my favorite reads of uh, all time. Thanks for coming by, Drew. Happy happy Sunday morning. Yeah, thanks for coming. One of the things that I was actually wondering, um, I think that I've read some fantasy. I haven't gone back to the older works, but this felt very unique to me, especially in terms of the writing style. I felt that the use of different timelines, for example, is something that you see in other fantasies as well. But the way that it was 
implemented here. That's very different. The use of philosophy, I thought that was very interesting with Zomi, of course, which you see much more here in Wall of Storms, but was also present in The Grace of Kings. So I was wondering, what were your influences while writing this story? Because you mentioned Tolkien, which I found very interesting because it, it feels like it's very different. So I was wondering if there's maybe something else as well. Yeah, so uh, so I want to say two things up front. One is influences is a very uh, complicated word. Um, I tend to be influenced a lot in a negative way, actually, um, in the sense that I'm often influenced in my writing because there's something else that I really dislike intensely, and I'm trying to uh, do something different from that. Um, so I won't be talking a lot about that, even though that is important, because um, I just don't really enjoy the negative energy of it. It, it may be interesting to, to say that something motivated me to do something different, um, but talking about it, I, I think in general, is just not great. So I'm going to focus on positive influence rather than negative influence, even though realistically they are both extremely important for my writing. Um, I'm often motivated by um, a, um, a desire to do something different. Uh, so that's just something to keep in mind. Um, the other thing I want to say also is that um, there is a transition in style between The Grace of Kings versus Law of Storms and then the next two books, and that's conscious too. The Grace of Kings is in some ways a prequel to the series proper. So it has a very difficult job because it needs to introduce a whole set of historical, mythological, um, uh, uh, a set of vocabulary for the world, if you will, with which the rest of the story can be told. So it is consciously written in a way um, that presents its own characters as larger than life. It is consciously written in a way to evoke a kind of historical memory, uh, whereas The Law of Storms and The Veil Throne and Speaking Bones were much more about, quote unquote, life-size figures, real people, if you will. So if you notice the shifting style between this very pre-modern um, uh, epic poetry style in the first book versus the more contemporary kind of feeling in the rest of the series, that's conscious that that is what, what was needed. Um, in terms of actual stylistic influences, um, I think a lot of, um, uh, a lot of the, the larger uh, schemes were uh, consciously uh, um, homages to uh, great political ethics. So the Aeneid is probably one of the most um, important uh, reference points for me. Uh, the Aeneid is a very political work. It's a very, it's consciously written to tell the story of a people. And it's in some ways the constitutional epic of the Roman uh, Empire. Um, and I wanted to, um, evoke a lot of that in the way the story is told. Um, so that's probably the most important influence. Another uh, series set of influences come from the great Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, poets that I studied. Um, so uh, something like Beowulf um, is a very important touchstone. Um, you'll notice that there's a lot of use of kennings and a lot of evocation of um, the warrior ethic uh, that's very much part of Anglo-Saxon poetry. Um, that sense of um, strength in the face of despair. Literally, I think one of the one of the characters in *The Grace of Kings* says something to the effect of, um, you know, um, 
his his heart, his his courage was the greater as his might lessened, which is you know a direct allusion to one of the most famous uh, quotes from the Battle of Malden in Anglo-Saxon poetry. Um, so that's an important influence. Um, uh, another source of uh, influence is Milton, um, my favorite poet. Uh, Milton was somebody who wrote a lot about um, big ideas uh, in very intimate moments. Uh, his portrayal of Adam and Eve, um, you know, shaped uh, a lot of the ways I portray good relationships in the series. Um, so Milton is a very important figure. Um, and then uh, the based on the title of The Grace of Kings, you probably could have guessed that Shakespeare is is very important, especially in the historical plays. Um, the especially Henry V, you know, those sort of uh, historical plays, again, they're about founding members of important dynastic eras. They're about how do you come up with a constitution? Um, this is not often read that way, but, you know, Henry V really, in a lot of ways, is about the constitution of what it means to be Britain. What does it mean to have a United Kingdom? Um, uh, it's, it's, it's Henry V is one of the important constitutive stories of that. Um, and I really enjoyed studying what it means uh, for Shakespeare to write this play and, and to participate in that storytelling about the founding of, of the idea of the United Kingdom. Um, and a lot of that was taken and placed into, um, into the books. Um, at the same time, because of the, the fact that I was trying to use a lot of East Asian history to do this, um, the great East Asian histories were very important too. So records of the grand historian, uh, Sima Qian's um, Shi Ji. That's a very important part of, of, of the fabric of the Grace of Kings, especially. A lot of the stories are directly taken from uh, records of the Grand Historian, uh, you know, changed in various ways to suit what I needed to do. But especially the way he used a lot of short, sharp character sketches to tell the story. That's, that's something that I ended up using for myself as well. Um, uh, Sima Qian is very interesting that he enjoyed writing history using biographies. So a lot of his work is somewhat similar to, you know, parallel lives of, of the Greeks and Romans, something like that. It's, it's, it's using little character sketches to tell history. Um, and I found that to be very effective. So, um, so King Jizu and Princess Kikomi stories were very consciously modeled on that style of writing. Um, I've heard some readers say that um, the style of the book reminds them of Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which to me is very funny, because uh, that is not one of my favorite books, and it's definitely not something I wanted to imitate. Um, what I think is happening here is either because some readers don't know any other East Asian book other than Romance of the Three Kingdoms, they think it must be somehow influenced by it. Um, that's not true. Uh, but I think there's another sense in which that, that may come across, because Romance of the Three Kingdoms itself is obviously influenced by records of the grand historian. So if that's the case, it's because we were both influenced by it. Um, so that's probably the, the, the reason why people think that there's some sort of stylistic thing they can detect. Um, consciously, the, the, the book that I was really going for uh, would be the Aeneid. Um, but the little character sketches, that approach was very much a records of the grand historian. Um, let me see what else. Um, some of the more comedic moments in the Wall of Storms and later on 
uh, were very much uh, influenced by Shakespearean comedies um, and uh, uh, even a little bit of restoration comedies. Uh, I really like the restoration comedies. Uh, they have that kind of um, uh, farcical feel to it. Uh, this may not be so apparent in the Wall of Storms, but they show up more later on. Um, and the uh, and and some of that you can see um, also in wuxia novels by Jin Yong. But Jin Yong himself was strongly influenced by Western traditions. Uh, Jin Yong is this is something that I think is very comical. Western readers, when they talk about Jin Yong, they always emphasize on how uh, you know how East Asian his writing is, which to me is very comical because Jin Yong himself was very cosmopolitan. And he was strongly influenced by Western tradition. His wuxia was so great because it represented a great melding of um, traditional Chinese novels, as well as a huge amount of um, influences from the dramatic structure and rhythm of Shakespeare and Dickens and other English novel and, and English novelists in general. Um, so some of my um, comedic scenes later on were influenced by Jin Yong's style. Uh, and that obviously ends up being um, a melding of something like Dickens, um, as well as um, uh, Ming Dynasty uh, Chinese novels. So that's sort of in a nutshell. I can go on because there's lots mm. of quotes of poetry. There's poetry that's derived from uh, Greek models. Uh, so uh, some of the poems written by uh, what I call the imagist poets were obviously homages to uh, Sappho uh, and other Greek lyric poets. Um, and uh, some of the poems were directly modeled from Song Dynasty and Tang Dynasty poems, but a lot of them were also derived from old Anglo-Saxon poems, uh, which I think are very powerful and, and beautiful. Um, you know, uh, modern English has lost a lot of the really strong rhythm of old English poetry. Um, and some of what I was trying to do in this book was to recreate some of that. I think that's that's one of the reasons this book has such an unique identity because not many authors nowadays take stuff from the old world, from the new world and from Asia and try to mix it into like one big piece. It's not something that I find in modern literature. It's often that they take direct inspiration from one uh, source and you can see that and because you took uh, inspiration from so many places you felt it in the book as well it's truly felt like uh, all these facets to it uh, that made it so interesting oh one thing i forgot to mention that you're reminding me of it um i i made a conscious effort to evoke some of the um feel of homeric ethics too so you could see that the characterization of mata zindu especially it was very much like Achilles. And I think I specifically talk about the wrath of, of Mata Zindu, uh, whereas Kuni is much more of a Ulysses, Odysseus kind of figure um, with, with his cunning. Um, there were, you know, some uses of, of um, poetic paraphrastics of various sorts to um, give people who are um, into the classics a sense of that. Um, you know, I, I really love the classics, whether they are uh, Greco-Roman uh, or East Asian. Um, and there's a lot of uh, homage paid to them because I think there's something very beautiful and eternal about the way they describe these human emotions. 
um, and they become part of our own vocabulary for describing these emotions. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's very beautiful to me. Um, also going off of the idea of different influences, creating kind of a unique product. Last time when Steve, you and I talked, we, we discussed the fact that you like to kind of play with and blur the lines between science fiction and fantasy quite often in your works. And I think this second book allows us to talk a little more openly about that, because for me, what I find so one of the things, many, many things I find so interesting about this book is that you have the presence of scientifically explained magic, scientifically explained, um, you know, warfare. Uh, also, people would argue scientifically explained like dragon-esque creatures. I've heard many people talk about that with the Garanoffins. But at the same time, you have this unexplainable god presence that just is what it is, and, and it is mythical. And I kept feeling myself say, well, I love Luan, first off, <laughs> so, but his phrase is, the world is knowable, right? And I think you might have mentioned that in your previous conversation, and that that's a, something you like to work with, that idea that the world is knowable. But I love that that was contrasted with these gods that are just unknowable. And I liked that both of those exist in the same space. It's not just, you know, often in fantasy, it's like a hard magic system or a soft magic system. We, we tend to compartmentalize and say what the confines of the book are. But this one's just like, yeah, why not both? Why not both? And I just really enjoyed that a lot. I, I think, yeah, I did that because it, it in some ways mirrors our really, our um, actual lived experience. So it's often said that, you know, the dividing line between fantasy and sci-fi is whether the belief that the universe is knowable is core to the story. Um, and I, I, I agree, but I also think that in real life, we don't always just hold one belief. I, I think we, a lot of us in the modern world, um, and this is just not in the modern world, to be honest, uh, you can see this sort of thing um, as far back as Marcus Aurelius. Um, and uh, a lot of uh, the classic Confucian scholars were like that too. But there's a sense in which we don't really we yearn simultaneously for the transcendence of something beyond the merely knowable, as well as the sense that the universe actually is knowable. Both are ideas that we love, and, and sometimes we hope both true. Um, Luanzia, you know, is a representative of the, of the group who sees the beauty of knowing the universe. He believes that the universe is more wondrous uh, the more you know about it. And he believes the universe is fundamentally knowable. Um, but, you know, uh, Sarah later on, especially not necessarily in this book, but later on, um, you'll see that she comes to have a more complicated relationship to this whole thing. She really sort of tries to see whether it is possible to, um, to know that there's something transcendent out there, unknowable, and, the, and, and that life in some ways is about accepting that there is some unknowable core to experience, to life, and that it is for the unknowable uh, that we stride into the storm, if you will. Um, and uh, I, I think it represents, uh, in some ways, my own lived experience. I mean, all of us, I, I, I don't know. I have friends who are very hardcore atheists who, who are 
very comfortable with the idea that there's nothing out there that is beyond what is knowable. Um, I myself, I'm not able to do that despite my own dedication to the scientific viewpoint. Um, so anyway, because that's the way I experienced the world, I, I wrote my books that way. We did have a comment from Jeremiah. He read with us. Uh, I love his detailed notes on Goodreads. It is almost like a companion piece. I wish more authors did this as it answered many of my questions. It was a thank you. I'm glad that you liked it, Jeremiah. Um, it was a real joy to be invited by Goodreads to do it. Um, I thought that was a really fantastic program. I know that I enjoyed reading the um, notes from authors, um, um, books that I love. Um, and so I thought, you know, I'll, I'll do something similar here um, and try to give readers who are interested uh, a little bit more of a sense of what I was thinking. Um, so, um, you know, this goes back to my whole theory about fiction, which I think is really fascinating. Um, fiction requires two people to function, right? You, you have the author who writes the story, um, but I, as the author, when I'm writing the story, when I'm writing down the words, there are stories and ghosts haunting every word that I cannot put into the story, right? So when I write the word love, it's motivated by my own experience of love. I always have a particular unique definition of love and a particular core memory, if you will, um, in terms of uh, Disney language, a core memory of what love is like, whether it's the moment for me when my grandmother um, was sitting next to me as a child knitting a sweater, even though she was suffering from arthritis and her hands were having difficulty and her fingers had difficulty to move. Um, but she said, I, I'm going to keep on doing it because I don't want you to be cold. You know, for me, that's a core memory of what love means. Um, and for you, it would be something different. But when I write a story, right, every word is haunted by these um, core memories. Uh, but after the story is written, all that's left behind is the empty house. The ghosts are not there. They were there in my in, in my writing of it but they don't show up on the page once the book is out of my hands in your hands now when you're reading the story though you cannot make sense of the story until you allow your own ghosts to move into the story you have to endow every word with your own stories about love your own observations about human nature your own experience of what it's like for somebody to be loyal to be to be a traitor to be brave, to be cowardly, to love and to be hated. You fill all the words with those ghosts and then you make sense of the story. So in a very real sense, the story that you read is not at all the story I wrote. And that's true for every reader in every book. So, um, you know, it's inevitable that every reader will emerge from the story with a different reading of it. Um, and all of us being born in the post new criticism era have learned, um, you know, this approach of reading the text as the text or just going to make sense of the text independent of the author. Um, but I don't think that's the only way to read. I think a lot of us as readers actually do enjoy sometimes to hear what the author was trying to mm -hmm. say. And, and it's interesting to hear the author, to get a glimpse of the author's own ghosts and, and who haunted the story when they wrote it. Um, I think there's a particular kind of joy that comes from reading a book with that understanding in mind. I mean, you're never going to get the exact same story that the author meant to write. Not possible. And yet, for me, sometimes it's very interesting to compare my own reading versus the reading I get after getting a sense of what the author 
was trying to do. Uh, and sometimes I emerge with the third reading that's even better and, and more interesting to me than before. Um, so that's the hope behind those notes. Um, I'm hoping that it will enrich the experience of the readers um, in some sense. Good stuff. Uh, and you you mentioned wanting to wanting to do something original. Did you find difficulty with the first book to find a publisher who would take a chance on something that was had a different feel to it? Was that was that something that you encountered? Um, to a degree. Um, I mean, I, I did have um, some. Um, so I absolutely, you know, went through this process of talking to agents, talking to publishers, etc. with with the manuscript. Um, and then I will say, you know, I got a lot of, I don't get what this is. I, I don't know how to sell this. And I don't know. And then some comments to the effect of, you know, you're going to have to do some heavy revisions to make this work. It's not commercially functional right now. Um, and um, I guess it depends on the kind of writer you are and what you care about. Um, there are some writers who who really do care very much about, you know, writing a book that will please many readers. And, and that's perfectly fine. That's actually a very noble goal. Um, I sometimes write stories like that. Um, but for this one, I didn't care as much, I guess. I, I don't know how to put it. I didn't care as much about having the biggest commercial success possible. Um, I, I sort of said, you know, I, I don't know how to describe this book. I have to invent my own word for it. I'm going to call it a silk punk. It's, it's a word I invented just to describe the book. Um, it's a book about reimagining um, uh, the founding of modernity. Um, and that's what it is. And it's about people having fun fighting um, fire-breathing hippos. If you uh, I, I don't know what else to, to it's, it's, it's a fun book. It's, it's a book that, you know, I have some important ideas I want to say with it, but I also want to have fun with it. Um, this is the book I wanted to write. Um, and, uh, you know, if you can see your way to publishing it, great. If you can't, um, I'm not going to rewrite it for you. Um, that's kind of my attitude. Um, and uh, I was lucky that, you know, Simon Schuster and, and Saga ended up being the one to uh, pick it up and publish it. Um, and, you know, I think they've done, they did a phenomenal job in terms of the presentation, the cover and so on. Um, and also in the UK, Head of Zeus, um, uh, who also did an amazing job with their own covers. Um, and um, I just feel very lucky that I had publishers who decided to publish these books um, and to believe in them, um, you know, and uh, I feel extremely fortunate that I got to connect with readers who found the story resonated with them in some way, um, like you guys, you know, it's, uh, this is super cool. Um, I don't think when I wrote it 10 years ago, I could have imagined that one day there will be people who also got to live in Darrow with me and who got to walk through Dara with me and, and who can now talk to me about it. This is all stuff that was just in my head. And now I get to share with someone and we get to have a journey through Dara together and to go through the wall of storms together. That is, um, you know, a, a joy that I don't think uh, is very commonly experienced at all. So um, I'm, I'm really ecstatic uh, that I got to this point. 
hearing you say that some of the the publishers looked at the grace of kings and said i don't know what to do with this is is interesting because for me as a reader even just taking the first two books not taking into account the last two which are technically one but um even just taking into account the first two i feel like you kind of need both because i've had some people who started the series and said, well, The Grace of Kings, I liked it, but I had a hard time connecting with the characters because it was more yeah. of an epic scale. And then I'm like, okay, if that's your if that's your thing, read read The Wolf Storms because you're going to get so close to these characters that that's what you were missing in the first one, right? And your experience in The Wall of Storms will be so much better for having read what all of the characters are basing their decisions on, right, in the first one. Yeah, I mean, like, Gia is a character that I struggle with to this day, even knowing her entire arc. And talk about mastery of character work. I mean, I have never simultaneously hated and respected a character. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> On the same page, I'm like, can you die already? But actually, I kind of like the, what you just did. You know, so I feel yeah. like the character work that some people say isn't in the first one because of the epic feel. It's, it's present in the second one, um, very much so. Um, Zomi as well. She's just in my heart forever. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the the kind of close feeling for me hit hard with this book as well, because I said I was listening to audio and there's that one scene where the Ryuku hardliners destroy that baby. And I was folding clothes like laundry listening and I just I, I had to stand up. I had to walk it off like it, it truly affected me and I had to stop what I was doing in my daily life because I cared so much about yeah. this scale, you know, the character work and, and story. So I think the two when taken together work really well. But it, I guess it'd be really hard to pitch, you know, like almost $2,000 book. Or yeah. 2000 page book here. Take this, you know. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I mean, just as a matter of practical advice for writers, I, I don't recommend the approach I took to people. I, I don't think it's a great approach uh, commercially because um, so there are a couple of things I want to say um, in response to your comments. Uh, so the first one is, is a little bit lighter, which is that um, uh, generally um, a series that does an abrupt shift in the middle of the series in terms of style and approach, it's just a really bad idea. Readers do not like that. It's, it's, it's very hard to try to sell a series to readers and describe the series to them based on the first book, only to have the second book shift styles entirely. Um, you know, often the, the publisher will say, if you meant to write the rest of the series like that, why not just write it like that? It's, it's easier to sell. And if you're going to do the first book this way, it's just it's just a weird alienating thing to do to readers to write that way. Um, I I understand all these comments, um, but you know at the same time I say this is the way the story came to me and this is what I wanted to do. I, I don't I understand it's commercially difficult, but it is what I wanted to do. So it is what it is. Um, but I would say that if you have a choice over the way to tell your story and if you feel like your story can be served without doing this sort of abrupt shift in style try to do it that way. Uh, it will make your life easier. It's very hard for me to describe to people what it is because Taylor, like your point, um, you know, when I describe to people, the first book is written in this very pre-modern style. That's what it is. It's a pre-modern style in which the characters are all surface. You have to understand what the characters are by reading beyond the surface. It is up to you. This is consciously written like Achilles 
consciously like that. That's the whole point. Um, it's not a style that modern readers engage with very easily, unless you're very steep in the classics. Um, and then in the starting the second book, I changed. So, you know, it, it's just, it's a really hard way to, to do things. Uh, I, I made it more difficult uh, than I needed to, perhaps. Um, uh, but I'm glad that all of you actually enjoyed it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to actually be able to connect with some readers. It's sort of like something that, um, um, uh, let me see, uh, some, uh, James Merrill, one of my favorite poets once said, um, James Merrill is, uh, is, a is a poet who is relatively popular among poets. I mean, people don't really, don't read poetry really, but he's relatively popular as a poet and yet he didn't have that many readers. And I think he was interviewed at one point and people asked him, do you want more readers? And he said, well, I do. And then I don't, right. It's, it's, it's why should I dynamite the whole pond to get all the fish when I'm just interested in the one silver carp. Um, if that's what I'm interested in, maybe I should just make my lure specific for the silver carp. So that's kind of how I feel. I wrote the book for people who want the silver carp. Um, and if it happens to be what you want, and then that's great because we get to have a journey through Dara together. Um, there were things I perhaps could have done to um, make the job of selling the books a little easier because it is hard for the publisher to describe these books and, and to try to pitch them to people when there's an abrupt shift. Um, but, you know, I ended up writing the books I wanted to write and I got the readers I wanted to have. And again, like I said, I feel very lucky and very happy that it worked out. The second thing I want to say in response to your um, uh, comments is about uh, some of the atrocities in the books. Um, so Margaret Atwood, when she wrote The Handmaid's Tale, said she had a rule for herself, which is anything that she described in the books had to have actually happened somewhere. Um, and that is the same rule I followed here. There were many atrocities committed in the uh, books. Uh, all of them had happened somewhere to a conquered population. Um, so the, the, the horrible things done to literal babies, um, they were done during the Mongol invasion. Um, and then these were things actually done by conquering armies, um, even modern armies. Uh, so there, the level of depravity and, and utter um, cruelty that humans can inflict on each other um, is there's no limit to it, really no limit to it, uh, especially if you study a little bit about the history of war crimes, um, which is unfortunately one of the things I know quite a bit about, uh, and the history of um, uh, torture, um, also something I know a little bit about. Um, and it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, as you read these books, um, to the extent you think that the author is going crazy here and thinking of things that people would never do. Um, that is not true. There's nothing in there that I described that did not actually happen somewhere, um, sometime. I think, I think maybe we that's, that's why it oh, resonates. Sorry. That's yeah. what I was going to say. That's why it resonates. But go ahead, Steve. Oh, no, I'm <laughs> sorry. Um, that was just a, you, you mentioned the, bit, the scene with the baby and you were folding laundry and you had to pause. I think we've all, we all had a moment like that reading this book. Uh, what was what was yours, Yulene, that you had to pause? So it's it's been a while since I've read the book, but I am a very emotional reader, so I did tear up a couple of times. Um, but one thing that struck me was how real these characters feel. And that's something that I'm always looking for. But for example, Zomi, um, so she has a very rural upbringing and then 
she turns out to be rather smart, intellectual, and she goes into a completely different type of world. Mm -hmm. And what I really enjoyed there was how you could feel the disconnect between her and her mother and how she had that guilt of mm -hmm. I'm doing this now and my mother is there and she doesn't really understand what's happening in my life, but I don't want her to feel like I feel now superior. And that's something that struck me because I am in a little bit of, of a similar situation, but it's it's interesting to see how you have that influence on a on a bigger scale, on a historical scale, but then you have these very personal stories as well. And so that was something that kept me somewhat emotional throughout the story. And then at the end, when you have Zomi, she finally meets her father. You have the intellectual father and then her actual father, and they both leave her life immediately after she connects with them again. So that was something that, that really struck me. Yeah, the um, Julian, thank you. The the whole idea of you know moving from one sphere of life to another to transition between these worlds and feel that disconnect with your roots, I feel like that's a very quintessential aspect of the modern experience. A lot of us have gone through that. I mean, I've talked to so many friends from around the world who you know talk about this sense that they grow up you know, one thing, and then they strive and strive because that's what society tells them they're supposed to do, and they strive. And they do find themselves in a new place, living in a world that they never imagined when they were children. And they do have a lot of freedoms and a lot of joys, but they also feel this incredible sense of loss, of disconnect with, with their roots. Um, you know, I myself had to go through that, you know, uh, after I grew up, it was hard for me to reconnect with my grandmother again. Um, and and it, you do feel like you're a different person now and you can't talk about the things you want to talk about because you literally don't have the words and the vocabulary that is common. Um, and some of what I wrote about Zomi's experience with her mom is emotionally based on those kind of personal experiences because it's true, we, we, we can't go home again. Um, and um, no matter how happy we are with what we did, and accomplished, we're always going to feel a little bit the sense of, of, of pain at that. What about you, Hans? Did you have a moment you get to, to pause? Well, that was the one I also had. The, the, that was my biggest impact moment as well. The moment that her father's combined and then they both die. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think the moments I loved as well were the moments that they had scientific revelations. So um, the part in the, at the 75% mark, I think, where all these separate people go into the world and one sees a street magician and one goes to a, a, a tribe of people that don't have contact with the world and then all these different inventions, someone sees the connection between all of those. I really enjoyed how that came together and how uh, biology and uh, uh, engineering and all these different science were combined in this book to eventually lead to the uh, invention of these battleships that could specifically be uh, weapons against these flying deer dragons. Um, yeah, I really love that part uh, in combination with the part that you mentioned. Very cool. Yeah, um, I actually had a, there was a moment where I had to laugh, but when Jima is, uh, they're having a conversation about, um, I had no idea you were such an expert and on the heroic sagas was this in the saga of he whose name is a mouthful i read it too that was just hilarious and then shortly, shortly thereafter um you know they 
I, I love when cultures clash and the that perception of each they both see each other as barbarians. Uh, yeah. And and when they they just assume that, you know, they say, well, you you know, we should take off our weapons because if, if you were if we were them, we would feel more comfortable if you took off your weapons. Right. And you you're just you're not thinking this you're not seeing it from their perspective. So just let's disarm and let's show them we come in peace and and of course that goes terribly wrong. But I, I love that when cultures clash and when they, the way that we, they see each other, they both see each other as barbarians and, and uh, lesser than. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. And I also like how that is portrayed that it doesn't matter who is more technologically advanced. It doesn't matter because the point of view is, is just diametrically opposed in that moment where it's just like, mm, you're not like me, you are an other, and it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. I really enjoyed it. And uh, Drew had a comment. Uh, Tenro burning his family inside the tent made me pause. That was brutal and made me, made me, yeah, made me pause. Yeah. Yeah. Tenro is a is a is a brutal kind of dude. He, he is not a nice person. <laughs> I would not invite him to a dinner party. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned earlier, though, also how you kind of took inspiration from short character stories kind of coming together to make an overarching story. And I think knowing Tenro's past, while I would also not have him as a dinner guest, <laughs> nowhere near me, um, I do think that that added a lot of context for why he is as brutal as he is, because that's just the world he grew up in. His world was brutal, and and now he just continues that cycle forward. Well, we often, um, you know, treat these people as great heroes. I mean, historically, we have treated men especially who are incredibly violent um as great heroes i mean there are good reasons for that in some cases um but on the whole i i think it does represent a toxic aspect of our cultural traditions um uh Terrio is uh the story is very much modeled on that of uh historical figures like temujin and and so on who do come out of incredibly violent past and who um, are just even more violent uh, than those around them and were able to achieve a kind of peace uh, for those who uh, happen to be within his consideration of what is, you know, blood. Um, and uh, uh, Terminio is not, is not a nice guy, uh, even by the standards of his time. Um, so, you know, let's not, you know, engaging historical revisionism and sort of the bad kind of revisionism where we say, well, you know, at the time he wasn't seen as bad. No, he was seen as bad, even by people around him. Uh, but, you know, we nonetheless can celebrate those people as heroes because um, as we've all seen, there is an authoritarian streak in a lot of people where um, the the guy who can stand up and project a vision of strength is worshipped as a great leader. Even in a great democracy as the U.S., we, we have situations like that. Um, so people who can project that sense of violence, of dominance, um, they, they get worshipped as great heroes. Um, and, and I really wish we could fundamentally change that cultural narrative. I saw a little bit of a reflection. Oh, sorry, Steve. No, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. A little bit of a reflection of that was his effect on his daughter. What's her name? Tambanaki? Tambanaki, yeah. Yeah. Her her moral 
complications within herself, you know, trying to follow in her father's legacy and then being like, I kind of don't want to follow <laughs> that legacy and seeing her struggle with that, still do horrendous things in that struggle. But the fact that that struggle existed, I, I think that was a bit present in the book as well. Yeah, Tenvanaki is sort of, um, you know, somebody who, who portrays these family dynamics, um, who embodies these family dynamics that I see all the time. Um, you know, we're all born into violence, really. Uh, a lot of us are born into legacies of violence. You know, many of us have privileges that have nothing to do with us, but have to do with violence committed by our ancestors. Um, we're born to privilege or positions of of, um, of uh, dis privilege of, of um, suffering as a result. Uh, the world is just not fair. You're, you're born out of you know, the veil of ignorance into whatever historical legacy you're going to inherit. Um, the problem is that you, know, you may not have been personally responsible for some of the violent acts, but you benefit from the legacy of those violent acts. Um, similarly, you may have personally done nothing to deserve what you end up suffering, but you're going to have to suffer for um, what happened to your ancestors. It's just a fundamentally unfair aspect of, of life. Um, and I think in the in, in modern, late capitalism has a habit of trying to dismiss those things. That's why the narrative of you know history is irrelevant. It's all about your personal efforts. It's so popular because there is, it is easier. It's it's more efficient if we can just forget about all of that and, and, and move on and try to maximize uh, the pie. Um, but I just don't think that's true. Um, you know, we we're still dealing with the legacy of colonialism, of enslavement, hundreds of years after they were abolished. Um, it's just a part of the human condition that we are born into this kind of dynamic. We have to struggle with it. And Temenaki is somebody who was born um, into a legacy of violence. Uh, and then she has to figure out what does it mean to be a, a dutiful daughter? What does it mean to be a great Luku? What does it mean to be a leader? Um, she's, she has been told that the only story is you win or you are killed. Um, so she has to do that, even though she was also educated by a teacher who um, taught her there may be other ways. Um, and you know, her entire arc is about the struggle of can she find the courage to see this other way um and no and uh kind of speaking about not being able to go home uh drew had a comment about the distinct personalities of Cooney's kids was well done often when a group of people like that are introduced it's difficult for me to differentiate them yeah. i i'm i'm glad thank you um it's 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 very cool to see that i mean i i've seen a lot of uh my friends you know grow up and and it's always fun for me to think back to what they were like as children to see aspects of their personality shown even when they were kids you know it's it's just so fun to see you know today she's like that but i remember when she was like a little girl you could even see hints of what she would be like even back then um it's very cool so i try to write kuni's kids like that um so that by the time they become adults you can still see um you know hints of what they were like showing through and that that contrast of Cooney's kids versus what he was like when he was young, that the different um, privileges that he had, that his kids had that he didn't, was also very interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jeremiah said, I, re I read a lot of dark fantasy, but I will say that the dark moments in the Ball of Storms are much darker given that so many moment, there's so many m other moments of light. The contrast makes everything much more intense. 
Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how you can forget the fact that there were moments of joy. I mean, you know, one of the most moving things I've learned over the years is to study the, you know, the history of victims of great atrocities, um, the enslaved, uh, the Holocaust, um, the terrible um, civilian populations um, that were slaughtered um, during German and Japanese massacres. Um, the, the thing that always struck me is how people found moments of joy in the darkest moments. They were able to celebrate the fact that they were alive, that they were going to tell their story, that they would not be erased, um, that those with power will not and, and could not silence them. Um, it's, it's those moments of great joy of celebration um, that um, really moved me. Um, you know, even in the darkest moments of history, um, the, the, the victims were able to enact and, 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 and live their humanity um, and to raise up these great moments of joy. Um, and that's something that I really wanted to be sure was represented in these books. One of the scenes or sections of the book that brought me the most joy was definitely your, your ode to teachers with Luan and Zomi. Mm -hmm. Their like learning montage is how I can describe it. Yes. Like I was living for that. I was like, I know this is going to end. I know this is a, a bright spot right now. You know, it can't last forever, but I would have been happy to read a whole book about just that. <laughs> yeah, the learning montage. Oh, that's great. I love that. Um, this is this is something that I really like. Um, so, you know, people often ask, you know, what are some cross-cultural differences between different narrative traditions? And I often say that it's not so much a difference as a matter of emphasis. So, um, you know, it's not like here in the West, we don't have stories about great teachers and great teacher-student relationship, but it's not often given a specific name. It's not often treated as one of the core um, relationships of, of, of humans. But in East Asia, it's very different. Um, the parent-child relationship and the teacher-student uh, relationship are often seen as parallels. They're they're equally important. Um, in the West, we have these stories, we just don't view them quite in that way. The in loco parentis idea is sort of just an idea. It's not, it's not something we really make true in our storytelling. Um, so that's that's the one thing I did want to emphasize a little bit. I wanted to um, show that, you know, for, for the people of Dara, this is actually something very core to them, the idea of um, this kind of intellectual parentage, this kind of connection, um, which, you know, we do we do live through. I mean, you know, I think for a lot of us, especially in the professions, we, we have that. Certainly in academia, um, you always have a different relationship to your advisor, to, to the to the person who is most important to your intellectual growth. There's definitely that. Um, but even as lawyers, you know, I definitely um, have a very different relation with the judge I clerk for. Um, you know, she in some ways is the very model um, that I pattern myself after in terms of how to be a lawyer. Uh, and a lot of us have those experiences of having a mentor, a teacher who is so important because they really are the model uh, after which we pattern ourselves. Um, and the whole blonde Zomi uh, arc is meant to um, remind us of, of how important that kind of relationship can be. Teachers never mm -hmm. stop caring. 
Yeah. <laughs> it is very short. I'm sorry, go ahead, Hans. Yeah, I've, I've, I had a, a larger bit that I liked a bit about the book, and that's maybe related, related to my personal interest in surface level mythology is that at the end of, in the, in the course of this book, the deities of this world start to morph and change a little bit. Some start to fuse and some change because new people are um, changing their belief system around them. Mm -hmm. um, and this is also a thing that's discussed in one of my other favorite books, American Gods by Neil Gaiman, in that uh, the, the way a god or a deity is portrayed against the world is very much... Um, decided by the people that believe in that deity because the, the belief is what gives them power and I really enjoy the, uh, the process of this book that made the um, deities change because the Lyuku were starting to uh, put their own deities in the name of the gods that were a part of this land and kind of change the legacy of these deities over the course of the book. That's a part I really enjoyed. Yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed writing about those parts. Um, you know, I got a lot of my ideas from studying the history of the um, portrayal of the gods in different cultures. So, you know, one particularly interesting line is to look at the portrayal of Buddhist um, deities and demons and um, spirits as Buddhism started spreading into East Asia um, and over the centuries the representation of these deities slowly changed and became quote unquote more East Asian over time. Similarly, you can sort of see the portrayal of Jesus uh, in Japan and Korea and, and over time how it changed. It's, it absolutely is true um, that, you know, the way we envision um, the supernatural and deities change over time. Um, and in a very literal way, we shape our gods. Um, and I wanted to sort of, um, uh, portray that um, in, in the novels um, and, and, and show how that can be and how a kind of melding of beliefs can happen. You know, Zen Buddhism is, is a great example. Zen Buddhism represents a great melding of um, native Taoist traditions with Buddhist ideas. Um, and, um, you know, this happened during the Chan Buddhism uh, before spreading to Japan as Zen Buddhism. But one of the reasons why Zen Buddhism is so uh, influential in East Asia is because it is able to meld a lot of native East Asian beliefs into um, a lot of the, the Buddhist beliefs and to create something unique um, that spiritually feels extremely powerful. Um, and, uh, you know, some, some, some of the stuff that happens to the gods in these books are meant to um, evoke that, to, to echo that. Mm -hmm. And uh, Drew had a comment, the time jumps were some of the best I've read, providing amazing context to making the events happening in the present that much more impactful. They flowed well and didn't take you out of the story. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I, you know, uh, that's just a, a, a style that I really enjoyed. I, I didn't want to, um, I, I just thought it was more fun to write the story in such a way that you have this kind of jumping back and forth. Uh, to make the reader work a little bit. Um, I thought it's more fun to keep the reader engaged rather than trying to tell everything chronologically. Um, I tend to think that it just ends up being a more fun kind of experience. And also, um, that's actually the style that a lot of very old epics took. Um, they, they, they would do things like this and jump in time very extensively. Um, 
you know, turns out to be a very old technique, uh, but I very much enjoyed using it here. Mm -hmm. That's uh, often the placement that was the most perfect thing about these, because right after you provide the revelation in the, in the current timeline we are in, you provide context for that event in the past. And I often found the placement and the, the, the timing of those um, flashbacks to be a major, major strong point of the book. I think yeah. something you had mentioned, Hans, oh, I'm sorry, Yolene, just, just to go off what Hans mentioned earlier is that um, the, techno the technological reveals, I think that's where the timing for me stuck out the most. Like we would go in the past and find out how they got this technological reveal. And then you see its application. So I don't know if that's what you were talking about, Hans, specifically, but for me, that that was definitely a point where I was like, oh, you know, it's like you find a puzzle piece that you didn't expect to find at the last minute. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it, it was in, in that regard, that was one half of it, and the other half was like what we talked about with the, uh, the tech you. What's the name? The the Liuku chief, uh, uh, placements of that uh, uh, backlore and, and backstory. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah, both of those elements were very meant. Does is it is it painful to write scenes like uh, Kimo's uh, execution? Was that tough to write? A lot of things were very difficult to write. Um, I mean, really, almost anything involving uh, violence to children was extremely difficult. Uh, you know, um, I wrote these books as my two kids were growing up, and they were babies when I first started writing, and now they're you know young women um, of great accomplishment. Uh, but um, violence to to children is something particularly difficult. I mean, it was always hard to read about these incidents in the past and to write about them. But uh, after you become a parent, I think it's especially difficult. I've heard from many authors who say that, you know, violence to children is something that they just could not tolerate writing anymore after they became parents. And I sort of understand why. Um, even I had to sort of hold back on some of the stuff. I just couldn't do it. Uh, some of the atrocities that were committed against children, I, I actually just could not write about it and I had to cut it out. Um, it, it was very hard, emotionally very hard to write. Um, and um, I mean, I always sort of consider it to be a kind of a success. Uh, so as I was mentioning, I had to revise these books extensively and each revision pass took forever. Um, I would catch myself sometimes, you know, during a revision process, just reading through pages and pages um, and getting very emotionally moved by my own stuff and not trying to do the revision that I was trying to do, which I was I always took as, a relatively good sign perhaps meant that that section was all right I, I didn't need to do a lot of tweaking with it but yeah um, I, I definitely had some moments that were very hard to write especially um, uh, involving children um, it's difficult the other sort of thing that's very difficult to write for me are the betrayals at the last minute you know uh, like in the wall storms um, just as Gin was on the verge of her greatest victory, um, you have Noda Mi doing his typical thing um, and stabbing her in the back. Um, and it is, it's, it's, it's incredibly painful to write those scenes too. I actually really, <laughs> I was very revolted to write those scenes. Uh, but, you know, again, in real life, sometimes that happens. Uh, you have the Benedict Arnold. You, you have these people who will just do it. Um, and, uh, and and it's terrible, uh, but that's also an aspect of the human experience. Hearing you say that that, that Gin scene was very difficult 
makes me feel better with how difficult that was for me to read. But for me personally, the scene that got me with betrayals was, at, you know, I thought there's only a couple pages left in this book. It can't be that drastic. Uh, yes. Then <laughs> Zia goes after, get, gets Rasana in the end. And I was like, mm -hmm. <laughs> did you have to? Yeah. Do this I mean, you know, she she believed that she was doing the right thing. I mean, she would always be haunted by it, but she she believed she was doing the right thing. Her her point is, even if Rosanna herself does not end up becoming a, a competitor, there will be other ambitious individuals who will use her. Um, and I can't just I, I can't allow it. It's it's I'm not I can't allow it. It's not it's not going to be a good thing for for the country. Um, and she's convinced that she is right. Hmm. It's, it's and then you have to. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Hans. Oh yeah, then you have to betrayal, and then uh, Risana thinks she's she's escaping somehow, and then it's a double a double one. So that one uh, strikes double. That sings double. Oh uh, uh, yeah, that was the same way, Taylor. I thought we're almost to the end. I think we're safe, <laughs> and then nope. <laughs> and the body count got one higher. <laughs> yeah. That is something about this book too. Is the body count is very high, but none of the, none of it feels wasted. None of it feels like for shock value for me personally. I, even I hope so. Cooney, even Cooney, his death, while it it is, you know, nicked his foot on purpose, and you know, so some people might say it's not epic enough or whatever. But for me, it felt fitting. Felt like it was mm -hmm. the right time. So even though it pained me when I read those types of scenes with Gin and everything, I didn't feel cheated. You know, as as a reader. No. I'm glad. I don't know others' experiences if there was someone that still pisses them off that they're dead. But <laughs> yeah. what, uh, which death hit you hardest, Julie? Um, for me, it was Luanzia. Yeah. yeah, I mm -hmm. probably because I connected to Zomi that much, and it was heartbreaking to see him go because I knew how much it would hurt her. Um, but one of the things that I also found heartbreaking, and it's not Kuni's death per se. But how he tried to do the right thing, he had that entire idea years before that he was going to put Farah on the throne. But he needed to make the realm ready for that. So he was doing it in secret, but he had a lot of things in check to make sure that that was going to happen. But you can see that, or at least that's how I perceived it, that he was neglecting almost Timu because he couldn't really connect to him. He was such a different child from Kuni and... I think that he had a very hard time hiding that towards Timu, which mm -hmm. then made him a very easy target for the Liuku because he was looking for acceptance. And it makes me wonder, would Timu react differently if he knew what Kuni's plans were? So it's like he, he had everything in check and he was trying to do the right thing for the realm, but still he fell short. And that shortcoming towards his son had some major repercussions later on. Mm -hmm. So it's not so much his death, but what, what he tried to do and how he somehow at least in part failed doing it mm -hmm. that that's something that i i took from uh, especially dynastic history um you know which happens to be a large part of human history in general but the the fact that you know i, I think the greatest tragedies are always when everybody's trying to do the right thing and then to do their best and they're just not they're just not compatible and, and trying to do the right thing ends up leading to terrible mistakes um the I, I, I have known many um, terrible father-son relationships where the son in some way is a disappointment to the father. And it's a disappointment that just they can't get over and they can't articulate. They cannot accept their son for who they are. 
um, and the son resents the father and, and it's just this sort of dynamic goes on and on generation after generation that we just can't seem to escape it. It, it just happens all the time. I, I know friends who, you know, were driven to suicide or attempted suicide who were had horrible relationships because of that kind of paternal disappointment. Um, and, and so, you know, when I wrote the Timo um, uh, Cooney relationship, it is drawn from those, uh, those, those examples that I got to see in real life. Um, Cooney is somebody who he wanted his son to be, to be like him. And Timo's just not that. And, and, and Cooney feels guilty because, you know, for his own ambition, he abandoned uh, his son and his wife to his enemy as hostages during those formative years. And those are years that he'll never get back. And, and that distance that he felt towards Timo will never be made up. And guilt sometimes will lead to neglect and to hate, actually. Um, oftentimes we think that if we feel guilty about something, maybe they'll try to make up for it. That's not always the case. Sometimes when we feel guilty about something, our tendency is to resent it because how dare you make me feel so bad? You know, uh, it's one of the aspects of Cooney that is not perfect. He's not a perfect person. And his treatment of Timo was terrible. Um, you know, Timo is not a perfect person either. Um, he, you know, Cooney was not wrong to say that you've read so many books and yet you don't seem to understand anything. It's not, he's not wrong. Um, and like you said, you know, it is precise because Timo feels so rejected that he is able to be so easily manipulated into that position. Um, you know, these are, these are also terrible stories, uh, but I'm hoping that, you know, that you will see by the end that Timo's arc does make sense. He, he did try to do the best he could and, and he lived a life in accordance with his ideals, which is more than we can say for most people. So, um, you know. That's a great point. I didn't uh, think of it, but I, and he even realizes that at the end when he's, you know, it's kind of like I've, I, I lost him. He's, it's too late now. I can't fix it anymore. So that's pretty heartbreaking too for him to have that realization that he failed Timo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about you, Steve or Hans? Did you have a, a death that struck you guys? What about you, Hans? What was your uh, plethora to choose well, from? <laughs> yeah, mine, mine already got mentioned because Luan was my favorite across the two books we read now. So his that obviously hit me the hardest, especially seeing him in such tortured state right before he died. So. That was the major one for me, I think. Mm -hmm. What about you, Steve? I think I think Luan was was just because when we see him again, he comes and he's been he's in this really horrible state, and then we learn what happened to him and the journey he went on. So that was really impactful. But also Cooney at the end, because of book one, we had this attachment to him, and I didn't think I didn't know if he was going to make it or not. But I, I think the way that he hurt his foot and they were trying to, he didn't say anything about it. So it got infected and he has this, they're amputating his leg, trying to save him. I think that's kind of what happens. These kind of events don't always happen in this spectacular fashion. Sometimes it's this small thing that just grows and it, things don't turn out the way you would expect them to after some, after some, especially to someone like this who had accomplished so much. So that, uh, that was another one that kind of, that'll stick with me for a while. <laughs> mm -hmm. Even the great figures are mortal. Yeah, they're, they're mortal and they die for the most ridiculous 
reasons. Um, yeah, that's part of the human condition. <laughs> um, I'm curious about something. Um, what did you all think of Mata and Mata Zindo's death? Did you end up feeling sympathetic to him in some sense, or did you never really connect with him? I'm curious about that. I think for me personally, the Wall of Storms affected me as a reader in almost in the way it affected the characters in the book, if that makes okay. sense. So when I read it in the first book, I, I did feel sorry for him because you're seeing through Cooney's eyes like he didn't want to do it. And it's kind of like that miscommunication trope with like the most catastrophic yes. consequences <laughs> you can imagine. So I did feel that feeling. But then you're when I started The Wall of Storms, I was very solidly on Cooney's side, like he had to do it. But I think seeing some of the things that little po the pockets of rebellion would say was like, well, you know, he was kind of heroic. Like I felt it affecting me as a reader. So I, I kind of flip-flopped as I read. So I think that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think I just, where I land now is kind of somewhere in the middle. <laughs> like I, I don't think I'm solidly on one side or the other because I was moved by how other people saw him um, personally. So... Yeah, yeah, I, I think for me, it's it's similar that the it's so infuriating to see how you have both sides who are actually trying to do the right thing. But then you have the miscommunication, you have other people who are influencing them from the side. I think also that Mata was a person who was a product of his own environment. He was never mm -hmm. really meant to be a political leader. So mm -hmm. once all of that political intrigue started happening, he just couldn't really see through it and see the real threat for what it was. So. I found it very tragic, but at the same time, I do think that he maybe had to die for, mm -hmm. for the good of the realm, to uh, mm -hmm. quote Gia maybe here. But so, yeah, it, it, it was tragic, but I think that he needed to go. Well, Johans, what, what did you think? Yeah, well, at the end of the first book, I was firm in my belief that, um, that Kuni was right, especially as we flip-flopped in the first book, because the first book made him very relatable. So um, in that regard, um, my belief was very firmly that Cooney was right. And I still believe that after the second book, but I think the implications of what Mota's vision were are very much uh, a bit deepened through this first and the second book together. And uh, although I agree that the, 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 the events that took place are still um, the correct way, because I think Mata wouldn't have been able to make a proper world outside of war. He is very much um, a leader during war. I um, I still think that uh, Mata was necessary for the good of the, the, the country. Uh, without his radical vision, the country wouldn't have been uh, as positive as it was right now. So um, I am sympathetic in a way that the, that the stuff he did had to take place, but I th also think he had to be re removed from the chessboard in order to move the game forward, so to mm -hmm. say. So, um, yeah, it's a very, it was a very, very valuable chess piece, but it's good. It was removed from the board, so to say. Yeah, I, I flip-flopped a lot, on the, especially more in the first book, but I think the the world had, for them to move on, Mata, Mata had to be out of the picture, mm -hmm. which is tragic. But I do, I do think Cooney mishandled that whole situation. If he would have handled that better, there may have been 
some uh, some way for them to come to a compromise or something so that they can work together somehow. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that. But isn't that kind of what happens though? That just some just these small mistakes end up, you know, they turn into these these bigger tragic stories. Which, um, but yeah, I, I think I would have loved to see Mata survive and live and see how he fits into this new world or if he could fit into this new world. Um, but I think the world had kind of moved on from him and he just didn't, he wouldn't have a place anymore. Yeah. So, but I, I did love the way that, he, the way that he died was very, very Mata. So it, it made, it, it was very fitting. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the, the Mata story was very interesting to me because, you know, um, the historical mo- model from Mata is one of those characters that's very controversial historically there have always been people who are sympathetic to his cause but i'm always like how can you be sympathetic to him he was just a great warlord who killed a lot of people he, he would have been terrible I, I never understood why people were sympathetic to him until i started trying to write the story um, i mean the, the historical um analog for mata and then i realized that there have always been figures like mata has been doing every revolution um you know you go study the russian revolution the cuban revolution um what have you you always have these charismatic war leaders who are purged after the war and they have to be purged because they are great war leaders but they cannot be around in peace they, they just they're no good um and uh, the purges are often very ugly uh, and terrible uh, and great and again the american revolution is unique in that we didn't actually have to do such a thing um mainly because um to be honest, mainly because we didn't have a lot of super charismatic great warlords during the American Revolution, which is for both good and ill. It was it was good <laughs> that we didn't have to do any such thing. <clears throat> so ultimately, um, you know, I, I I sort of got more of a sense of 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 um, sympathy and understanding for somebody like Mata because figures like him exist in every revolution. They are incredibly important in winning the war. Uh, but then afterwards, there has to be a way to move them out of positions of power or else they would just become a source of instability. Um, and um, it doesn't mean that their contributions should be forgotten. And I think that's one of the things that comes back again and again in the in the books, which is there's a reason why soldiers worship him. There's a reason why people still admire him. Um, he perhaps died at the right moment. Had he lived on much longer, he would have been very much hated. Uh, but he died just when his legacy could still be preserved. I think it's so interesting that we can all admit that about Mata Zindu, but yet almost everyone that reads the book is not a fan of Gia and the way that she treats the war heroes, the soldiers. Mm. It's so interesting that, like, I just realized that I have this, what's the word I'm looking for? Cognitive dissonance, where I can admit that with Mata, and then I'm also like, but I don't like how you do that, (laughs) which... (laughs) You know, they're they're the same thing. <laughs> Gia, Gia is such a uh, interesting character for me to write because you know she has a lot of ideas that are very modern that seem right, and yet the way she carries them out seem to violate some fundamental ideas we have about what is just, what should be done, right? So you know, Gia has this long speech um, that really is. Um, I don't. I don't think you guys have seen it yet. So, uh, well, this won't be a spoiler, really. But Gia repeatedly makes these speeches about how the military-industrial complex is a terrible thing, and we we cannot let the generals run the country. We just can't. Once we do that, we're we're just Dara would not be Dara. We just can't do that. Um, this is something we all agree 
Um, but um, the way she goes about it, which is to just sort of mistreat the veterans and to 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 you know deliberately uh, do these terrible things for men and women who have you know sacrificed uh, for the country, um, is also something that we just cannot tolerate either. Um, you know, she is she is a very conflicted character in that way that. Her ideals may be things that we can agree with, but the methods by which she goes about to accomplish them seem just utterly unacceptable. <clears throat> uh, G is one of those characters I, I love that, uh, just the way she goes about things, It's she's really fascinating. I think it makes the story a lot, uh, lot more rich, very rich. Um, but Jeremiah had a question. I wonder if uh, you have any particular actors in mind for certain characters for an adaptation, if you've ever thought. <laughs> I don't. I mean, when I... When I um... When I originally wrote The Grace of Kings, I think I sometimes, in some of the scenes, I kind of picture The Rock as Matazindu. I, I think that may be the only one I sort of actually had in my mind that I really liked. Because uh, I think, you know, The Rock has that kind of awesome presence and he's just a really charismatic guy. I can see, you know, Mata by him would be somebody that people can believe in. Uh, but no, in general, I, I didn't really... Um, think a lot about a, a potential cinematic adaptation. Um, I will also say that this may be somewhat interesting. Um, uh, the battle scenes in the first book were all written to the soundtrack of Pacific Rim. Um, I just love the, 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 the <laughs> very powerful rocking uh, soundtrack. So the, so, the, so the battle scenes were written to that. <laughs> so if you could imagine. I mean, I mean in hindsight, yeah, it fits. It fits. <laughs> I love hearing that because the battles are the ones that make me think of adaptations too. I'm like, oh, that would look so cool on screen. So <laughs> clearly the influence came through. <laughs> yeah. I kind of had Jason Momoa in my mind with, for, uh, for Mata. That totally would work yeah. too. Jason is also an amazing, amazing actor. Yeah. yeah. But uh, really big, bigger than life kind of character. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That presence. Yeah. But uh, we know that you have uh, other commitments today, and, and uh, we don't want to keep you all day. We want to respect your time. But we hope that you'll join us after we get through book four. If that's... I'd love to. Okay, great. Awesome. We'll, Perfect. We'll thank you. Touch. This is so much fun. Really appreciate yeah, it. And, and thank you for your time. It was really amazing. Yes. yes. This is great. Very much appreciated. It adds a lot of richness to the book when you can talk to the mm -hmm. man himself. So that is much so cool. Yeah. <laughs> But, thank you. Uh, but th yeah, thank. We really uh, we know that you have you're very busy and appreciate you taking a few minutes out of your day with us. It means a lot to us. So it, it means a lot to me too to have these conversations. Thank you. Awesome. Cool. Well, everybody, oh, thanks for coming by, and we'll see everyone later. Thank All you. Right. Bye. Bye.